Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for blessing us with the beautiful sounds of music. You have uh, overflown our cup here at West Bulls with such musical gifts. Thank you, Lord, for the variety of voices and sounds of praise that we can send to heaven and that we can experience you in, old hymns, new choruses, and everything in between. And Father, we hope that and pray that you delight in that sweet, sweet sound to your ear. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. Surprise, surprise, yes? No surprise there, right? It's back to Acts we go. But I would like you to turn in Acts to chapter 1, which might cause a bit of surprise and even anxiety. I don't know. For you think, um, oh no, Acts chapter 1. I thought we finally made it into Acts 11. Now we're turning back to chapter 1. Please, pastor, say it isn't so that we're starting over. Let me calm your fears up front and assure you that we are not starting over. How many of you, how many of you are familiar with the phrase, can't see the forest for the trees? How many of you have heard that phrase before? Okay. It's a phrase we might use to describe someone that focuses on specific details so intently that they miss how those details fit within a much bigger picture. We might say that such a person can't see the forest for the trees. I think it came from, oh, it's, it's like someone examining very closely each tree in a forest. Its bark, its leaves, how tall it is, how many birds or critters or in Peru snakes live in the tree. I don't know, everything about the individual tree. But then they never step back from the tree. They, they never climb to a nearby hill overlooking all of those amazing individual trees in order to also appreciate the beauty of the entire forest as a whole. Now, so far in Acts, you can see our list of trees. <laughs> We've been pretty much marching through Luke's letter, one story, one tree at a time, drawing insights from the details of each story. From time to time, however, I, I think it's helpful and even necessary for us to pull back a bit and remind ourselves of the bigger picture, to appreciate again the forest, to better appreciate how each Bible story collectively contributes to that much larger context, in this case, that larger context of the massive, eternal unfolding plan of God's salvation for the world. And that's a pretty big forest. How many of you have had the experience of some of those door-to-door -door religious groups that canvass your neighborhoods? Yeah, I have too. Not recently. I, you know, maybe they don't come to my house anymore. Or maybe they're just not out there as much. I don't know. But even... Um, Christian groups within the church, even, even some approaches to theology are often guilty of, of missing the forest for the trees. And I think sometimes that's where some of those groups at least trip up on. 
If you've ever had that delightful experience on a Saturday morning at your front door, maybe you've experienced as I have. Uh, These folks appear to at least be well-trained in Scripture. They have their long lists of Bible verses rehearsed and ready. And it doesn't take long, if you're like me, that you feel like you're backed into a corner because it's hard to argue the points they're making. Sometimes, at least, I think the key to responding in love to groups who take this approach is to learn to recognize when their focus is so fiercely on individual Bible verses ripped from their greater context, or their focus is so fiercely on one particular theological principle based on an individual verse, we need to be able to recognize when when they forget to step back and check, check whether what they are teaching and preaching is also consistent with Scripture as a whole. Are their conclusions in sync with that whole trajectory of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation? Does it fit with the prompting of the Holy Spirit within the greater community of all believers? Is their message also consistent with, with what God says in total? about His great unfolding plan of salvation for the world. Indeed, a a singular, narrow, detailed approach only that never bothers to look or seek a greater biblical balance, if you will, is often the mark of a cult rather than the mark of a true community of God. So the next time you feel uneasy about a particular group's approach, either in person or that you're reading about, One test of that group's message should always be whether or not their message is consistent not only with a collection of individual verses or Bible stories, but also consistent with the Bible as a whole. As I always say to my Bible students, I'll share with you too and challenge you and invite you to always learn to look at context, context, context whenever we interpret and apply God's Word. Another way to say it, truth will always be consistent with the big picture. And the other side of that coin, anything inconsistent with the bigger picture is probably leaning toward, if not outright, false teaching. So, for the next couple of weeks at least, I'd like us to switch our cameras to a wide-angle lens to step back a bit and appreciate Luke's letter of Acts in the bigger picture context, the bigger forest of God's plan of salvation, before we dive back in again and continue our trek through Acts one story, one tree at a time. And we're at a good spot in Acts to do this pulling back. If you recall, several months ago, when we first introduced Acts, I suggested to you that It appears at least Luke organized Acts in writing it into two parts. The first part, chapters 1 through 12, primarily focuses, not exclusively, but primarily emphasizes Peter and the church in Israel. And then the second part of Acts, chapters 13 through 28, their primary emphasis is on Paul and the church outside of Israel. And so as we trek through Acts one tree at a time, as we come to this turning point between the two trees of Acts 12 and Acts 13, 
Let's get our bearings again, shall we, by looking at how this transition in Acts, really a climactic point of the book, how that fits into the bigger picture, the forest of God's plan of salvation. It's sometimes taught that the Old Testament is about God's plan of salvation for Israel, for Jews. And then there's this dark line that we dare not cross. The New Testament is about God's plan of salvation for the rest of the world, for non-Jews or Gentiles. Now, while it is indeed true that God introduced his plan of salvation in a Jewish context, he called out one nation, one people, the Jews, as his chosen people, we can nevertheless see throughout Scripture that God always intended, all the way from the beginning, that his plan of salvation include everyone, both Jew and Gentile, everyone who accepts him as Lord. In other words, God always had a single plan of salvation for the entire world that's been unfolding and continues to unfold since the beginning of time. In my opinion, at least, any tendency to isolate the relevance of the Old Testament as back then or God's relationship with Jews or any tendency to isolate the New Testament as God's relationship with Gentiles, in my opinion, that teaching can't see the forest for the trees. Because God's loving intent for Gentiles inundates the Old Testament, as does God's loving intent for Jews inundate the New Testament. Let's take a look. For example, way back in Genesis 12, when God makes his covenant with Abram, the father of the Jewish people. God promises Abram that all peoples on earth, not just Jews, not just Israel, but all peoples on earth will be blessed through Abram. Again, in Genesis 17, God tells Abram that he will be the father of many nations, not just one. Abram will be the father of many nations. In fact, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And Abraham, most scholars agree, actually means father of many nations. So God even gives him a many nations as his name. And he promises that his covenants for all those many nation descendants of Abraham. Later, through the prophet Isaiah, God says to the nation of Israel, You are my witnesses that I am God. Witnesses to whom? Other Jews only? Not likely, since God is talking to Israel as a whole. Rather, it seems, God's original design and intent in calling out Israel among all the nations as his very own, his original design and intent has always been that Israel would witness to the rest of the world that God is indeed God, and that the only path to salvation to God is through Israel's Messiah, who we know as our Messiah too, Jesus Christ. And so, when we get to what we call the Great Commission in the New Testament, when Jesus gives, him, gives them that command, when Jesus tells his disciples that they are to go and make disciples of all nations and to baptize all nations 
and to teach all nations to obey, that is not a brand new idea. God has had that idea all along. God clearly stated from the beginning His desire and intention and plan that all nations, whether Jew or Gentile, would be welcome into the kingdom of God. Now, while the idea of Gentiles being saved, being as much a part of God's covenant as Israel ever was, while that idea is not new, what is new, however, about the story in Acts before us is God is putting his very old idea into practice at a whole new level, the likes, the world, the likes of which the world has never before seen. God takes his old idea to a new level, and that's a big deal. The God of Israel becomes more than ever before the God of all who believe. To borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis of Narnia fame, Aslan is on the move in the book of Acts. And you can sense Luke's excitement as he tells the story of God's plan on the move out of Israel and to the ends of the earth. You have opened before you if you've turned in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. And you can see Luke's excitement, I think, in the way he opens his letter, his book of Acts, with Jesus reminding his disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We sense the excitement building in the first 12 chapters of Acts. It's almost as if Luke can't wait to get to chapter 13, when the gospel finally sets sail with Paul across the Mediterranean Sea. In his excitement, Luke in Acts 8 gently nudges us in the direction of that event, that kickoff in chapter 13. In Acts chapter 8, as a result of Stephen's stoning, Luke, Luke tells us, that the believers scatter from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. Samaria, Aslan is on the move. And Luke continues this nudging, this foreshadowing of Acts 13 through 28. Luke continues to do that as he marches us through chapters 8 through 11. And he does it with a series of stories, most of which we've looked at. Luke does that by putting people into position to take the next step, to make the jump, to be on the move to the ends of the earth. What do I mean by that? Let me show you. For those of you who are visual, we know it. Well, let's say, let's start here. This platform is the nation of Israel. Okay? Now, I've got to switch north and south around for you. So this way is north. Everybody point north. Good, and say north. Very good. Thank you. It's an auditory learner up front. And this way is south. Everybody points south. Okay, which means that you are in what direction of Israel? Good. You're all bobbing along and floating in the Mediterranean Sea because we'll make this edge of the platform here the coast, the west coast of Israel. Okay, north, south, east, west. We'll make the piano Jerusalem. So this is Jerusalem. And prior to getting to Acts 8, that's pretty much where most of the things take place in the book of Acts. But beginning in Acts 8, Luke gives us that line that because of Stephen's death, they start to scatter. And then look at what we have in order. 
We've got Philip moving out to Samaria. That's about here. And then we've got Philip on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Gaza's about here. And finally, Philip ends up in a place called Caesarea. Caesarea's up here. Interesting, I think. Next, we get this strange introduction to Paul, even though we're not in the Paul half yet. Why does Luke introduce it there? Luke puts Paul on the road to Damascus with his conversion experience. He gets Paul out of Jerusalem. Goes all the way to Damascus. That's probably about here. Next story is Peter, right? Peter ends up in Lydda, which is right about here. And then he goes to Joppa, which is right about here. Caesarea is too close. Finally, well, Peter ends up also in Caesarea. We'll put a double chair there for Philip and Peter so they don't have to share a chair. Finally, Barney, or Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, Barnabas, in chapter 11, he runs off to Tarsus to go get Paul back. Remember, the apostle said, Paul, we don't know that we can save your life anymore. People are really out to get you. Why don't you go to Tarsus for a while till things cool off? Luke tells us the story of Barnabas going to Tarsus, getting Paul, and bringing him to Antioch, where they teach for a while. Now look what Luke just did in chapters 8 through 11. He lines them all up. It's like it's leaning on the west coast of Israel. And everybody's there, not sitting in their chairs, it's a metaphor, but they're, they're there in their starting blocks. It's like they're waiting for that Holy Spirit starter's pistol. Boom! Boom! They go and make the leap. Zoom! To the ends of the earth. Now that's a view of how the tree of the book of Acts is fitting into the forest of God's relentless plan of salvation for all who believe. I mean, dwell on this for a minute, please. For thousands of years, God had been planning and working toward this particular moment in time when He would unleash the power of the Holy Spirit, when God, in Jeremiah's words, would write his law on the hearts of his people, a direct reference, in my opinion, to the anointing and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then where God would unleash these Holy Spirit riddled believers into a world desperate for the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. For thousands of years, God had been working and unfolding that plan. And every time that strikes me, it strikes me what a mighty God it is that we serve. What a relentlessly loving God we serve. What an amazing God who over thousands of years 
continues to promise to brush aside guilt and shame, continues to unfold it where our sins can be washed away in the blood of Jesus, and who continues to welcome us with open arms into His kingdom. A God who never gives up on us, never forgets us, never ever quits on us. What a mighty God we serve. Now, with the people lined up from 8 through 11, as Luke anticipates in chapter 13, making the leap to the ends of the earth. There's one tree in the forest of God's amazing plan of salvation I'd like to look at with you this morning. I can't resist. I have to look at least one tree. And Luke puts this tree right in the middle of his lining everyone up. Luke shares two stories in particular back to back. Turn to chapter 9, Acts chapter 9 with me, verse 32. And take a look at those two stories that Luke puts here. Beginning at verse 32, Acts chapter 9. As Peter traveled around the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. Tabitha is Aramaic, which when translated into Greek is Dorcas. It means gazelle. There was a disciple named Tabitha who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Now, Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please, come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. Now, what an interesting couple of stories, couple of healing miracles to put right here in Acts. Why do you suppose would Luke put these stories here? Why put a story about Peter healing a lame man and raising someone from the dead in this part of Acts where Luke is building toward that moment in chapter 13 when the gospel explodes in earnest into the rest of the world. First glance, maybe it it almost seems out of place somehow. I'm not sure why Luke put these stories here. I haven't spoken with him lately. We can ask him someday when we see him. But I suspect at least part of the reason can be found in the gospels. How so? 
Well, let me ask you, as I was reading the story, did the details of these stories sound at all familiar with anything you've read in the Gospels? Do you remember reading in the Gospels of a paralyzed man on a mat and someone telling him to get up and get your mat, get you and your mat home? Do you remember reading in the Gospels where Jesus asked, raised someone from the dead, a little girl in fact, and said to her, get up? That's true. Jesus healed the lame and raised people from the dead. And, and what's particularly fascinating is that the details of Peter's healing miracles in Acts 9 follow very closely with the details of two miracles of Jesus in the gospel. Check it out. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic means same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have very similar wording, so they're called the synoptic gospels. All three synoptics record these two particular miracles of Jesus. In Matthew 9, for example, Jesus encounters a lame man lying on a mat, and he says to the man, get up, take your mat, and go home. The man immediately gets up, and all who see it praise God. In Acts 9, Peter says to the lame man, get up and take care of your mat. The man immediately gets up, and all who see him turn to the Lord. The very next miracle story in that same chapter in Matthew, Matthew 9, finds Jesus healing a sick woman and bringing a dead girl back to life. In the Gospels, we read that Jesus takes the girl by the hand and she gets up. Mark's account tells us a little bit more. There we learn that Jesus says to the dead girl in Aramaic, the Aramaic language, Talitha kum. Say Talitha kum. You spoke Aramaic today. Good job. He says Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. In Acts 9, Peter too takes the dead woman by the hand, helps her up, and Peter says to the girl, Tabitha, get up. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but I can't resist making something of it isn't it fascinating that the woman's aramaic name in acts 9 tabitha is one letter off from the other aramaic word talitha that jesus uses in raising the woman from the dead i i don't know about you whenever i come across those sorts of coincidences in scripture i always picture god with a twinkle in his eye and he's winking at me he kind of winks his sovereignty at me. Because I come across something like that, and I say, what are the chances? What are the chances that years later, there sits Peter, and the dead person just happens to be named Tabitha, one letter off from the dead girl. What are the chances? And the answer is, the chances are 110% given God's sovereignty. And there he is, he's winking at me. I love God's word and seeing his sovereignty in the text like that. Now, here's the $64,000 question, or in today's time value of money, the $64 million question. Did Luke include Peter's two miracles in Acts chapter 9 and even write them in the way he did, intending his readers to connect them to Jesus? Or are those similarities between Jesus and Matthew 9 and Peter in Acts 9 merely a coincidence? 
Well, you know, I've already tipped my hand. I, I suspect Luke did this on purpose. I suspect that for some reason Luke wants us at this point in the story of Acts to think back on Jesus and his similar healing miracles. In my opinion, here's two reasons at least why. First, Luke wants us to see that Peter is slowly becoming more and more like Jesus. He wants to show that people who believe in Jesus and have been anointed with the Holy Spirit have nothing to fear from the powers of the world like sickness and death. And second, I think Luke wants us to see and be reminded again that since the beginning, and certainly since Jesus, the gospel message is for all who believe, including, if not especially, for those the world casts aside. Peter heals a crippled man lying on a mat. So did Jesus. Peter raises from the dead a woman who was always doing good and helping the poor, even making clothes for them to wear. And Jesus raises a Talitha, a little Roman girl of all things, from the dead. And the message is there, I think, no one is insignificant in the eyes of heaven. No one. And then what about this final connection between the miracles of Peter and Jesus? Let's look at the context of Jesus' miracles in Matthew 9 where I think Luke wants us at least to think about. After Jesus heals the lame man in Matthew 9, some Pharisees get upset that Jesus is hanging out with, oh my goodness, sinners. And Jesus tells them, right in the context of that healing miracle, one just like Peter's, Jesus tells them, I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call the sinners. And then, in the same chapter in Matthew, Jesus also says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Do you suppose that one reason Luke gives us Peter's miracles in Acts 9 is to remind us of Jesus' miracles in Matthew 9? And it's to remind us where Jesus in that same chapter reminds everyone that He came for sinners. Thank Gentiles. And where Jesus also reminds everyone that the harvest is plentiful. In other words, there are a whole lot of sinners out there that need God. And that all God needs is a few good men and a few good women to take the Word of God into their lives. Now that at the very least, fits very well in the forest of God's plan of salvation for all. And it fits very well into this particular section of Acts where Luke is lining up chairs, building that climactic moment, or to that climactic moment, when the gospel leaps into all the world a few chapters later. One application and challenge for us today and then we'll be dismissed. Allow me to give it in the form of a question. Are we also sitting in these chairs, ready to make the leap 
into all the world? Or are they empty? Are we willing to to lay down our lives and to go and make disciples of all nations, including the dirty, rotten sinners, rather than just focusing on our own needs? Years ago, an artist, a musical artist and writer, uh, Scott Wesley Brown, he wrote a song that um, poked some fun at Christians who maybe sometimes at least aren't all that excited about going into all the world, who aren't thrilled at all about sitting in one of Luke's chairs ready to go. Now, to be sure, the song is worth a few laughs. I think it's funny myself. But at the same time, the laughs are intended to be at ourselves. Scott Brown intends his song to have a bit of an edge. See if you can catch it. As the song plays, laugh if you like. But also consider whether or not is there something about this song that maybe isn't so funny because it hits too close to home? Something that maybe um, isn't so funny because it exposes perhaps that maybe we're not all that eager to go into the world? Certainly, at least, not to Africa, as you'll hear. See what you think. I'll usher, I'll deacon, I'll go door to door 
thousands of years, God had been planning and working toward that particular moment in time when He would unleash the power of the Holy Spirit, when God would, in Jeremiah's words, write His law on the hearts of His people and then unleash these Holy Spirit-riddled believers into a world desperate for the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And that moment in time is certainly captured in the book of Acts, and we're creeping up on it through Luke's foreshadowing in chapter 13. But that moment in time is also right now. God has been planning for thousands of years, for June 3, 2007, too. And He knew you and I would be here today even before there was a here today. And so here we are, Holy Spirit-riddled believers, and there's a world out there desperate for the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. So my question to you and to me is, well, are we ready to make the leap? Are we like the early church runners in those chairs, chomping at the bit to reach the world? Are we like those believers who couldn't wait to risk their lives, to go out into the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. People in the church who can't wait to do missions, can you imagine that? People in the church eager to go and make disciples of all nations, and not just their own nation. Luke is excited about it. He excitedly lines up these first century believers who are running for their lives from the Sadducean Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And you want to talk about going from the frying pan into that pagan fire. They don't care. They're lined up on the edge of the coast, waiting, ready to go. Are we that excited, my friends? Are we as excited as Luke is in telling the story of Paul, who did a 180 and gave his life in order that others would gain eternal life in Jesus' name. Are we as excited, my friends, to be a part of God's great big picture of salvation for all? Or do we instead fall into the temptation of concerning ourselves with ourselves, West Bowles, and what we want and need? 
See, my hope is that it may never be said of us, Wes Bowles can't see the forest for the trees. May God indeed equip and find us as eager, as excited, as willing to play a part, a big a part as He wants to give us in this great big picture of salvation for all. Amen? Next week, we'll take a look at another portion of Acts that I thought was rather curious, Acts chapter 12. It's the chapter immediately before Paul sets sail on his first missionary journey. So I went to look at it again, intrigued. What would Luke give us? What would the final story be about before Luke unleashes these eager chair sitters? What would it be? You might be surprised. I was. Of all things, of all people, Luke focuses on a man named Herod. That's right. He's back. He's not the same Herod the Great from Christmas, but his grandson, Herod Agrippa. But you know what? You meet one Herod and you meet them all. They relentlessly try to get in God's way. They're like Twinkie paper. You know, you ever try to throw it? They stick to you like glue. Yeah, that's the one thing you'll remember from today's sermon. And here's another Herod trying to mess things up. Why, do you suppose? Luke gives us this strange picture of Herod as this, in this pivotal point in Acts. Why would he do that? Why talk about Herod? Well, we're out of time this morning, so if you want the answer to that question, you'll have to come back next week to find out. So, hope to see you again then. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we admit that we can become all too comfortable in our comfortable suburbia middle class seats. Father, as we look at and walk in the steps again of those first century believers who left home and went out to the ends of the world, to the ends of the earth, at great personal risk, who in fact, if church tradition is correct, every single one of them, every single disciple that you lovingly called literally ended up giving their lives. May we, Father, catch that spirit. Can we capture, Father, give us, please, that eagerness, that excitement, that willingness, that fearless come what may, that perspective on what indeed is truly important as we make our way through the hundred years or less or so that you give us here. Father, may your word again ignite, fan into flame, continue fanning into flame our passion to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters for safety as they go out and enjoy this beautiful Colorado day. Thank you for blessing us again. Father, I ask that you go with them as you promised wherever they go. Give them the strength and courage to avoid temptation. Give them the strength and courage and humble guts to continually point to you in all they say and all they do. So one person at a time, Father might see and experience them 
experience you through them. And they might come to know this God of Israel who is God of all through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And it's in His name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.